Isaiah 55. I love this chapter. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through this chapter. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you. We ask you to lead and guide us as we examine this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come you to the waters. He that hath no money, come you by and eat. Yea, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently unto me, eat you that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me, here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, you shall call a nation that you, that you know not, and nations that knew you knew not you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And I'm going to stop there. This is a very powerful uh, picture of God's call to the world for salvation. All right. And we start out, he goes, Ho, everyone that thirsts. You know, and we all have thirst. We as Christians have thirst. But the world really has thirst, but they don't know how to quench that thirst. One of the things you learn if you take any kind of survival training is to be careful what you drink. You know, they really will tell you on survival, if you don't have a large supply of water, the only thing you want to be drinking is water. Uh, they say, don't drink alcohol, don't drink coffee, don't drink tea, you are to drink water. Don't drink Cokes because they make things worse. You know, they, and the world keeps seeking after everything that doesn't quench the thirst. Uh, they will seek fame, fortune, uh, various sins and everything, and none of it quenches the thirst of what they want. And Jesus and God is calling out, if you're thirsty, come to the waters. All right? Come to the waters. And what waters is he talking about? He really is talking about Jesus. And it's kind of interesting because I started looking at this because Jesus, we know, said he was the living water. But I just want to take us through a short walk. This isn't even all the verses on, on a, uh, the desire of him being the water. In John chapter 7, verses 39, uh, 37 through 39. In the last day, the great day of the feast, they were talking about the feast that Jesus was at, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow waters of rivers of living water. For this spoke he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive the Holy Spirit that was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus says, You're going to be filled with living water. What was that, John? John 7, 37 through 39. God, Jesus said to the woman at the well, I am the living water. He that drinks of me shall not thirst again. He was telling this woman who was looking for the answer. In her case, she was looking for it in relationships. She had had five husbands, and, and Jesus said, the person you're living with now isn't even your husband. Because you're not going to find it with another person. 
And this is a problem that many people, even in our world, have. They keep trying to find it in relationships. If I find the right person, they're going to meet all my needs. Well, they're halfway right. The only problem is the person isn't a human being. The person is Jesus Christ, the true living water that satisfies our thirst. And we see this here. He's saying, he's, he stands on the ground and says, come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. And uh, then we're going to switch over to Revelation. Chapter 7, verse 17. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. This is what we have in eternity. Living water. Now, the thing about this is, and I've shared with many people over the years, when does eternity start for us as believers? The moment we accept Jesus Christ, eternal life starts. Eternal life isn't that point in time when I die and go to heaven. Eternal life is when my flesh has been crucified with Christ, God lives in me, and now I have eternal life from that moment on. And when my body finally decides to die, my spirit just steps straight into the presence of Jesus Christ and God, the Father, and real eternal life and without the shadow and bondage of this flesh takes over. But eternal life starts the moment I put Jesus in my life and I have the Holy Spirit in me pouring out living water for other people to have a relationship with. You know, we have the answers for people when they're having trouble, when they're not satisfied with their life and with the direction of their life. We have the answers for them. Now, they may not listen to us, they didn't listen to Jesus very well for the most part. But you know, the greatest thing that we have is when we share the gospel with somebody and they finally turn to God. It is wonderful to say the salvation prayer with somebody and watch God's uh, presence come in on them. They will stand straighter. The, the weight of their sin has come in and then all of a sudden they know that they are saved. And I hope each person here knows that feeling. I remember when I got saved, I was only 10 years old, but when I got saved, I knew that I had been changed. And my life drastically changed, and God's been changing it ever since. Because he is the living water. He fills us up with the Spirit, and then we pour that out on people. Uh, I had a pastor talking about it in prayer. He goes, we're so full of the Holy Spirit. He's gushing out all over us, and everywhere we're going, the Holy Spirit is splashing all over everybody. And you know, there really is a truth to that. Go hang around with lost friends for a while. You don't have to say a word to make them feel guilty. You don't have to say anything to make them feel bad and get irritated with you. You know, you're just, you're just happy. You have the Holy Spirit splashing them all over the place, and they get convicted. Now, if you add talking to them about God, oh, oh man, you're, you, really, you really cause problems. But you know, that's our job. We have the Holy Spirit splashing all over everybody and then open our mouths a little bit and just not in condemnation. When we share the gospel with people, we're not having a con condemning spirit. We're there to share God's love. God loves everybody so much that Jesus died on the cross so that he could then give us the living water, give us the Holy Spirit, and let us live with God for eternity as we were designed to live with him in, in the first place. 
And he says, I'm going to die for you so that you can have what you were designed for. Why can we not feel happy without God? Because we weren't designed to be happy without God. Adam and Eve's whole life had been centered around God. Every night he came to the garden and spent time with them, teaching them, explaining things to them. And when they rejected him, they lost that intimacy. And all of us ever since have lost that intimacy with God. And he's saying, I have a gift for you. I have this living water that satisfies, satisfies the thirst of your soul, satisfies your hunger because he's also the bread of life. He says, if you, if you want something, I'm your satisfaction. Without him, we'll never be satisfied. If our minds are not on him, we won't be satisfied even as a Christian. He lives in us, he's filling us, but if our mind is not thinking on him, following him, looking at him, and we're looking at the circumstances that we're in, just as the verse that we were looking at in, in Psalms goes, you're in the miry cray, everything seems to be going wrong, everything seems to be going against you, and if you're looking at the issues, you're not going to be content. Even though God is living in you, even though the Holy Spirit is there, and you have all the contentment you need, if you're not looking to him, you're not going to feel that contentment. Now, the key to this is we can't live by fear and by feelings. We have to live by the truth. When Jesus says we are set free, we're set free. When he says we're forgiven, we are forgiven. When he says we are loved, we are loved. When he says we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit in us, whether we think we do or not, or feel him, or, or any of these things, and we're able to go forward from there so we have this process where if we're not focused on God, we're not going to have that victory with him. And so we want to be able to keep our focus on him. But that comes down to knowing his truth. We are, our minds are changed by the washing of the regeneration of the word. And the more we believe his word, the more we can have confidence in it. It's very interesting as I go talk to various Christians out there in today's world, there are some that are so focused on God that they have no worries and no fears. And I've talked to other Christians, they are full of fears and anxieties. They will tell you they don't, but their words really tell you that they are full of anxieties, they're full of worries, and they're not focused on what God says. I mean, what is the absolute worst that can happen to us in our day and what we're going through? We'll get sick and get put in the hospital. You know, it's not I die. As a Christian, if I die, that's the best thing that can happen to me. The worst thing that can happen is I get so sick that I go to the hospital for a couple of weeks. You know, the next worst thing would be I get sick and, and have to stay home for a couple of weeks. And if we're going to get sick, we're going to get sick. Now, that, again, we've said this, you know, we're wiping down handles with a sanitizer. We've got the sanitizer. We're not running out and giving hugs to everybody that has the coronavirus. We're not being stupid. But by the same token, we cannot live in fear. And this is very important for us that we look and say, God, I put my trust in you because you are my satisfaction. The church has a history of running into the epidemics and the plagues. Why? Because we know where we're going. If we die, we know where we're going and we know where most of the, most of the city that doesn't know Christ is going if they die. And that's hell, so we would rather sacrifice our life if necessary so that they will hear the gospel message. 
And this is one of the reasons I am determined as long as possible to keep our doors open in the church. When people come seeking for answers, I want to be here to be able to say, this is the answer. The coronavirus is not a big deal, one way or the other, because it is just an event. And if we get it, we get it, and God is still in charge. If we die, God is still in charge. We get, we're, for us, we'll go home. Their family will have to, have to be, be a little sad, maybe. You know, and that depends on their attitude toward it. When my sister died and I went to the funeral, I told the pastor, I cannot be sad that she's dead. And he goes, I understand what you're saying. None of my, other fam- none of my family really understood. But I knew that she had come back to God. Toward the end of her life, before the cancer got her, she had come back to God and was going to church for the last year and a half, two years before she had died. The girl that, and I had gone to her house and, you know, to talk to her on purpose, you know, and I go, I go, you need to come back to God. She goes, I still love God. I go, no, I remember the little girl who loved God with all of her heart, and that's not you. And she started going back to church. She didn't talk to me again for two years, but she went back to church. And, and that's fine. I don't care. I don't care. You know, she came back to God, and I'll get to see her in eternity, and I think she'll talk to me when I get, into, get to heaven. You know, and I don't, think, I don't think that she was not saved during that period of time, but she had gone so far from God that she didn't really follow him at that point. And we can get that way. Well, we're still saved, but we're not following God because we are so far from him, not paying attention to his truth, not looking at it, And too many times we live our life by feelings rather than by truth. And our feelings lie to us all the time. That person doesn't like me. How do you know? Well, they gave me a bad look. Okay. They they just stepped they just stepped on a tack and gave you a gave you a hard look and and you're and they don't and you're saying they don't like you. Now, even if they don't like you, it still doesn't matter. We can't let somebody else control our emotions and our feelings and how we react because emotions are not what's going to be valid we need to base our life on truth which then leads to faith and then eventually feelings follow faith if we act on what the truth is feelings will follow when I go to God I am saved and I trust you that I am saved because Jesus said I am saved eventually the feelings will follow that I am saved and I will feel like I'm saved But even if I never do, it does not matter. Because God says, you said you asked Jesus into your heart, you confessed him as Lord, you believe that you're a sinner, you believe that you needed him to go to heaven, you are saved. Real simple. And it doesn't matter what I feel. And this is the thing about it. We go and we stand on truth. The solid rock that that Betsy was talking about before. We stand on the truth, which is the solid rock, And the gates of hell cannot persevere against truth. Satan's lies will never overcome truth. And an amazing thing is if you know truth, you see through the lies. If you're you're so stuck on lies, you'll never understand the truth because you don't have the real truth to begin with. And it is hard sometimes to stand for truth if you're so surrounded and so stuck on the lies which is why we need to be careful what we fill our brains with. We want to fill our brains with the Word of God. Fill it with God's truth. 
Now that doesn't mean we're never going to watch a movie, never read a book, never listen to music that's not, a, not scriptural. But are we spending enough time in his word to understand the difference? I've said to people, if you want to study the different cults and other books, that's fine. I have no problem with it. But you better spend an equal amount of time in the word of God to clean out your mind. Because I have, there's one, one person that was very famous for his study of the cults. He studied them so much so often that he went off the deep end toward the end of his life. Right? And he was still recognized as a great, great uh, you know, cult expert and everything and, and Christianity, but he started turning all of his judgment upon the church as well and started going after churches that he didn't think were, were following things perfectly because he was so used to being critical. We've got to be careful. Even if I'm going to study those things to know that, I'm not going to be using it to be critical to people. If you're talking to a, to a Mormon or a Muslim, most of them do not know what their church believe, what their, their churches and religion believes. So you go in and you go hammering a Mormon and about all the things that their church believes, and they're not going to believe you, even though that is what the, the things that their church teaches you. But that's not loving. Our job is to come lovingly in there and tell them, do you realize that you're not going to go to heaven for all your good, good deeds? God says that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then that Jesus came and died for your sins. We just lovingly present the gospel. Now, I've heard so many people, how do you witness to a Mormon? You give them the gospel. How do you witness to a Muslim? You give them the gospel. How do you witness to a Jehovah's Witness? You give them the gospel. It works. You know, it, the gospel is all we have. You know, I can't, pat, I can't mold the gospel to, to each different religion. I give the gospel. You are a sinner. You deserve death. Jesus paid for it. Real simple truth, and it doesn't matter who I'm talking to. How do I witness to the atheist? You're a sinner. You deserve death. Jesus paid the debt. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to believe it, but we can't tailor it to try to meet these different groups. The message is always the same message leading to living water. Now, in case you might think that, okay, we have the living water, but, but what's the big deal of Jesus is the living water? In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 8, it says, and, this, and it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem half of them toward the sea and the other half of them toward the hinder sea in the summer and in the winter shall it be and the Lord shall be the king over all the earth and that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. Jesus is going to be that living water that pours out of Jerusalem. Now this actually literally is talking about him stepping onto the Mount of Olivet when he returns on the second coming. The mountain splits in half and a great river of living water flows out into the Dead Sea, refreshing the Dead Sea, and the other half of the river flows out into to the, Medi to the Mediterranean. But living water with Jesus Christ flowing. And it's a very powerful picture that he gives us. In Joel... as I find Joel. And I even marked it, but I stuck it down too far. In Joel chapter 3, verse 8, is not the right verse. 
It happened. 18. I just forgot to put the one in front of the eight. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Jordan shall flow with waters and the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and shall water the valleys of Shittim. In the end days, living water, the river of life in Revelation 22:17, will flow down from the throne of God, which is Jesus. The power of all of this going on is so powerful that God has declared that there's living water. Living water for us. One last one, uh, well, two, one, one last one I'll read and then one we'll refer to. Jeremiah 17, starting at verse 12. A glorious high throne from the beginning of the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake you shall be ashamed and they shall depart from me from me shall be ridden in the heart uh, on the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of the living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved for you are my praise. Behold, they will say unto me, where is the word of the Lord? Yet let it come now. As for me, I have hastened, I have not hastened from being a pastor to follow you. Neither have I desired the woeful day you know that which is to come out of my lips. It was right before you. God fills our mouth. He is the living water. And then the last one you can read is in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, where Solomon calls his bride, living with, uh, Song of Solomon 4, 12 through 15, where Solomon calls his bride a fruitful garden, a one with flowing living water, fountains of living water. This is all that picture of Jesus and the full fact that he fills us with the Holy Spirit and out of us will also flow living water when we let him fill us. God's desire is not to just give us a little thimble full of blessings. He is not even giving us a bunch of blessings. He overflows us with blessings so that everybody we walk around gets splashed. If you think about going to a faucet and just turning on that faucet into a cup and just leaving that faucet on, the cup doesn't get bigger. The cup doesn't hold the water on it. It starts splashing the water all over things. That's how God is with us. He fills us with living water that splashes all over everybody. And this is where we get our true power from when we witness. We have the words, but it's our life has to match our words. And people have to see, when we start talking about the love of God and that God is going to fill us with love, they better see love. You know, if we're saying God loves them and we're being mean and nasty to them, they're going to go, uh-uh, doesn't, doesn't compute. When we say we have faith in God and then we're living like we don't have faith in God, they're going to go, uh-uh, doesn't compute. You don't have anything more than, you don't have anything more than I. I'll just stick, I'll just stick with my drinking and my drugs and... And my, and, and my fame and whatever else I've got because you don't, have, you don't have the answers. This is why Paul said, I have learned to be content with much or with little so that when people looked at him, they're going, you've got something. You've got something. When all the world seems to be going against us and we stay faithful to God and people go, I don't understand it. If I had everything turning against me, I wouldn't be following that God. I'd be looking for something else. I'm going, well, you don't understand. God satisfies my need. He hasn't left me. All the other things may have left me, but God has not left me. And that encourages people. 
If we were to get sick with the coronavirus and stay faithful with God, even if we were stuck in the hospital, and we stay faithful with God and encouraging for people, they're going to look and say, you have something. And this is what we need to be ready for. Not that we want the bad things to happen to us, but we stay faithful in those bad things, and then people look at it and say, you have something I want. We'll encourage other Christians as well because there are Christians that just don't have enough faith to be content. And if they see us being content, hopefully they will be convicted and maybe turn to God and to be more content. The world looks at us and says, wow, you have something because the world's looking. The world is looking. You know, it doesn't matter how rich they are, how famous they are, how deep in depravity of sin they are. They're looking for something. And they're looking for people that have something. And when we come back and we say, Jesus is that answer. He is the way. They're looking and saying, is it really true? Do you have something that you can hold on to even in the hardships? Now, most of us, we're human beings. We don't like hardship. I don't like it any better than anybody else. But people are looking at us, how do we handle hardship? God sends us the hardships most of the time so that we can demonstrate God's love and faithfulness to people. And it is true. Most of what we truly learn about God is in the middle of hardships. And God always has Romans 8.28 be true. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Not for my good. Just When I go through bad things, it's not for me at all. It's for me to stand with God and people to look on and say, wow, you really still trust in God when all that stuff is going on? When you're in trouble, you're still trusting God? And it makes an impression in them. It may not be the thing that gets them to turn to God, but it makes an impression to them. They say, I'm thirsty. You seem to have something. You seem to have something that I really want. And then we need to be able to come up to them and say, here it is. Here is. Ho, everyone that that thirsteth, come you to the waters. He that hath no money, come by and eat. This is quite an interesting statement. All right? You don't have any money, but come by and eat. Why? Because Jesus paid the price. And he's saying, here it is. Here's all the water you want. Here's all the food you want. And it is food that satisfies. The great news, when we truly follow God, there's great satisfaction. I don't need to be famous anymore. I don't need to have money. I don't need all that the world is putting in front of me and saying, you need all this stuff to be happy. I am filled with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, and I am content. I am full. I have plenty, and my soul is not thirsty. I have my soul and my spirit are fed, and they are quenched in their thirst. And Jesus paid that price so that we could come in and be able to eat as much as we want. He is not holding back. And he holds a feast. He says, eat all that you want. And if we try to out-eat him, he'll just create more. This is the God we're following. We can't outgive him. We can't take more than he wants. 
Where do we have our limit? We limit God more often than not. We don't believe that God can do certain things, so we don't challenge him to do things. We don't believe that he can do healings. We don't believe that he can supply our needs, so we hold back. At the back of my mind is this whole idea that if the coronavirus was to hit very heavily in this town, I could lose my job. I'm non-essential at the prison. All I do is teach, in, teach inmates. I'm not a security guard, I'm not the medical staff, and I'm not the kitchen. Technically, if things got bad and they locked down, I could lose my job. They locked down, I could lose this job. You know, not totally, but not, not, have, not be here to work. If they totally locked everything down and said, you can't go to work, then I have all of a sudden gone from making the money that I make to making nothing. You know what? I don't need the government stimulus to be able to survive because God will take care of me. He'll make sure that things get taken care of. Now, he might use a stimulus. Whatever he uses, it doesn't matter to me. He will be the one that I look to. And he's the one we all need to look for. You know, I've seen many people say, I can't afford to tithe. My attitude is you can't afford not to tithe. Mm -hmm. You know, my 90% goes a whole lot further. Well, my, I give more than 90%, but the amount of money I have left over goes a lot further mm -hmm. than the 100% would have gone. Always, it always has. For all the years that I have been giving to him, he has never been unfaithful. He gives back. He has plenty to feed us with. Plenty. He says, come, come buy wine, milk, without money and without price. Wine usually refers to the Holy Spirit. Milk, nourishment. He says, come buy the Holy Spirit and it doesn't cost you anything. There's no price on it. We can't even put a price on it. It is so far beyond price. And he says, come, take me into you. The Holy Spirit indwells us and fills us and pours out of us. And we fill our mind with the word of God and the dependency upon God. And we are filled. Our soul is filled and satiated, which means satisfied. And this is what he's saying. And then he asks a question of people. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread and labor for that which satisfies not? <laughs> Who's he talking to here? The world and carnal Christians. Why do we go seek after everything that doesn't satisfy? Even as Christians, sometimes we will go out and seek after things that don't satisfy. Entertainment, money, prestige, you know, and this gets hard sometimes. Some, you know, we go, well, God, I, I really want, the, want this. And there's pastors that are out there just to get prestige. You know, they're not really good shepherds because they're trying out there to make sure everybody knows who they are. And God's saying, no, that's not what you're there for. You're there to feed my sheep, grow my sheep. And if you get the benefits, great. If you don't, great. There are Thousands and thousands of pastors like here that are preaching to small groups all the time, pouring their heart out, that probably could preach in big churches and be satisfied and, and do a good job in big churches, but God has put them in small churches because God says, my small churches need a shepherd as well. The small amount of flock needs just as much feeding and care as that big flock. And God has put some very good pastors, and I know many of them that are in just small churches. And they'll never really be known by anybody else in the world because they're just laboring around with their, you know, under 100 people 
and nobody knows who they are. They're not in front of a crowd of thousands and thousands with a, with, a, with a camera on them and filming them so that they can be broadcast on television. And not all of them are bad, don't get me wrong. There's some really good pastors that are even there. But many of them are just doing it so they can be seen and heard. And God is saying, don't seek for those things that don't satisfy, that aren't food. We need to be looking to God and saying, God, I want you to fill me. Once you know what it is to be filled by God, you never want anything else anyway. You know, uh, unless you start drifting away from him. And it's easy to drift away from him. All you've got to do is stop reading the word of God, stop fellowship with the body of Christ, and before long you forget what it's like to be fed. And then you start getting hungry because you're not feeding yourself or being fed. And eventually our goal for, a Christ, for a Christianity is to start feeding ourselves. My goal as a pastor is to have everybody in my church be able to feed, your, feed yourself and not need me to feed you. If I work my way out of a job, great, I'll go find somebody else to go feed, but it's never going to happen. I'm never going to totally work myself out of a job because there are still... And, but, but the great thing is, the more people get fed, the more that they're desiring, the more they draw out. The greatest thing for a teacher is to have people really hungry for what they say, which then makes you go have to go back and study and dig deeper and harder for yourself because they want it. I am I'm looking forward to the day when people go, no, don't stop. <laughs> no, you can't stop. My dad was a teacher and he went, over, he went over into the Black Sea area. They got there and they started a Bible study at about five o'clock. They had been traveling all day to get there. At one o'clock in the morning, they were saying, we gotta go, we're so tired, we can't speak anymore. And they're, no, don't stop. You know, they go, well, we have to stop. We've been up all day. They stopped, they got back at six o'clock in the morning and continued all, all around the clock, all the way to, to past midnight again. And they still didn't want them to stop. They were hungry for the word of God. Amen. Hungry. And you know what? It draws it even out of the teacher. If somebody is that eager to learn, it is fun to teach. Yeah. It is fun to teach when people are that eager, or that hungry. I've never had quite that, that level. <laughs> We're getting, we are getting there. I mean, what, what happened on Sunday when we kept telling Art, keep going, you know, you don't have to stop just because it's, because it's 10, after, 10 after 12, keep going. So, you know, and I had even told him, you know, the people know that if it's going too long, they can go home. <laughs> you know, but are we really hungry? Are we seeking things that don't satisfy? The world seeks things that don't satisfy. And they know they're not satisfied. They think if they get enough of it, they might get satisfied. If I get just a little more fame, I'll, I'll finally get that spot where I'll be satisfied. If I get just a little bit more money, I'll be satisfied. If I just take a few more drugs, I'll hit that satisfi satisfaction point. If I get a little more alcohol, I'll hit that satisfaction point. If I have just more family around me, I'll have that satisfaction point. <laughs> well, and that's just it. For us as Christians, we feed ourselves with the word. We feed ourselves with the spirit. And we are satisfied. We come to Bible study and we walk away satisfied. We get the Holy Spirit knowing that he's in us and he satisfies us and makes us content. But the world does not know that. They're, they're out there 
literally buying things with money and time and effort that don't satisfy, mm -hmm. that don't feed, don't feed the soul, don't work on the soul. And he says, you know, hearken unto diligently unto me. And this word kind of funny, hearken means to hear and obey. And diligently is the same word in Hebrew. Hear and obey, hear and obey. Now we say diligently because we're emphasizing, which is what the dual nature of those words mean. When, when the Hebrew double uses a word, they're emphasizing that word. So here he's saying, hear and obey. And by the way, hear and obey. And he says, eat that which is good and your soul, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. And this word for fatness literally means blessing. All right? Eat and delight in the blessings. How easy is it for us to ignore God's blessings? Because as human beings, we as all human beings have this, what have you done for me lately attitude, even with God. You know, it, we're never satisfied. It's like, okay, all right, you did something really good la yesterday, last week, uh, you know, but what have you done for me today? And we take that into our marriages, we take that into our work, we take that into our families, and we're looking for satisfaction and what is, what's being done lately, and in the worst case is we take it to God. God, I'm not happy that you took care of me yesterday. Not even happy you took care of me this morning when you, gave, when you woke me up and gave me blessings, but what have you done for me in the last hour? We take that with God and... You know, it's great to desire more for God, but don't take it to the place of, God, if you don't bless me right now with something, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be content with you. That is a dangerous place. You think about Paul. Paul goes to Rome. He's sent to see Caesar. He spends two years in prison, house arrest. During that, piece, that period of time, everybody seems to abandon him. He's not out starting churches. He's not out doing things and people forget him. They had an attitude, what have you done for us lately, Paul? And yet, Paul stayed faithful to God. Yes, in one of the letters he complained, everybody has left me except for Timothy and Luke. And he's a little, he is a little down, but he's still content with God. And this needs to be our attitude. Even when it looks like God is not blessing us, we need to stay faithful to him because Romans 8:28 is still true even when everything looks like it's going wrong it's still true and it's okay to ask God God I don't understand how this can be good I don't know understand how you can make good happen from this but God is always in control he does not see things the way we do he is not looking at the beginning which is what we always look at he is not even looking at the middle, which we might be looking at. He is already looking at the end, the end result, and said, well, just wait till you get there and you'll find out why it's good. When you get to heaven, I'll show you why it was good. We don't know how many people are looking at our lives. We won't know how many people are look, have looked at our lives until we get to heaven. There may be people that come up to heaven and say, I watched you while you were going through all that and you stayed faithful and that's why I decided to follow God. We don't know. Our job is to just stay faithful. Grab hold of that living word, grab hold of that living water 
and be satisfied. Know that God is in control. Why do I have no fear at all about what's going on? Because I know that God is in control. If he wants me to be sick, I'll be sick. And if I'm sick laying in a hospital, I'll be ministering to the nurses and the doctors at the hospital. You know, as much as I can in the pain. But they're going to know that there is a God. They're going to see me reading my Bible. They're going to see me praying. They're going to see me praying for others. And lifting up God. And that is what people want to see. They don't want to see all this fear. And when Christians are living in fear, we're showing people we don't have anything. We don't have the living water. We don't have the bread of life to be feeding them. Then it says, incline your ear and come to me here. And Betsy got it exactly right because that is literally what it means. Bend forward toward God and hear. I'm inclining. I'm, I'm pulling forward to God to hear what he has to say. And, you know, if we start listening, God has things to say to us. Most of the time it's going to come through his word. It may come from the spirit actually literally talking to us, whether audibly or in, in our spirit, doesn't matter. But he is speaking to us. He wants us to hear. And he says, hear and your soul shall live. God is not worried about our physical. Our physical being is not his primary concern. He cares about our soul because he wants our soul to be with him in eternity. If he needs to harm our soul for that, our, our body for that to happen, he'll harm our body. If he needs to harm our body so that we will be an example of somebody else, he will harm our body so we will be an example of somebody else. We need to stay content with him because he cares about our soul. Now, having said that, he will take care of us physically. He promised us that we will not be broken. He will meet our needs. We will have food. We will have our necessities. The problem is here in America, we think our that, that a lot of things are necessity that aren't necessity. And God is saying, I'm going to meet your necessity. He's going to make sure we have enough food to survive. He's going to give us shelter. He's going to take care of the things we have to have. Now, does that mean we're going to have our five cars and our, our cell phone and our cables and our, and our beautiful homes? Not necessarily. But you know what? God will also bless with those if need be. Yeah. He took Job, taught him some lessons, and gave him back great wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth. If somebody's wealthy, does not mean that they're a sinner. There's nothing inherently good about being broke. The thing about it is, am I content wherever I'm at? I have actually seen people have more harm done to them by being wealthy. They're following God and they get wealthy and they get blessed and they stop serving God because they start playing with their wealth and start trusting in their wealth rather than in God. So God, for many people, won't give them wealth because he says, you're not going to trust me. I, don't tr I can't trust you with the wealth, so I'm not going to give it to you. And then he's going to give us just enough. Just enough to keep us on the path with him. I found being comfortable is sometimes a trial too because you're comfortable. 
Yeah. So what are you worried about? You know, it really takes focus sometimes to realize that it's God. Because you're comfortable, you still have to thank God. The more comfortable we are, the easier it is to drift from God because we start living in the comfort. We start living, we start looking at the gifts rather than the giver. And when we stop looking at the giver, we're in trouble. And that's where comfort comes in. I've got, I've got three meals a day. I've got a pretty nice house. I've got, I've got some nice cars. I've got a decent job. The job is paying a, paying a, paying a nice check. Uh, you know, I seem to be going along, and we forget that we have all of that because God gave it to us. And we stop focusing on him. And you know what you, God will oftentimes do? Take away that comfort. If we're forgetting the giver, he may just take away the gifts and make us refocus back on him. And so we're to incline our heart. And when we do that, he said, he will make your soul live and he will give us the everlasting covenant that he made with David. David was told that a, that a son of his would sit on the throne of David forever. He would be the Messiah. Most people in this believe that David here is being used in a generic sense. They're really talking about Jesus. And so we look at this. We waste our time so often, and yet God says, I've got blessings for you. I have blessings for you. Not just spiritual blessings in heaven, temporal blessings as well, as long as we stay focused on the giver and stay focused on him. And then he says, Behold, I give him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people, so this is what Jesus was. He was a witness or the evidence. He was the testimony to us. Jesus came to this world, lived a perfect life, showing that it could be done and that he paid the price. And then he died for our sins as a sacrifice lamb. And he came to die. He came knowing that he was to die as a sacrifice knowing that he was going to die a horrible death. And he still took it. He kept telling the disciples, I'm going to go die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. They never understood. They never heard. He's getting arrested in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane with a whole troop of soldiers. And Peter stands up to defend him, grabs a sword, and, and is ready to fight. He's ready to fight the whole army. He chops, chops off Malchus's ear. Jesus tells him, put the sword away, heals Malchus's ear, and says, this is what I came for. This is what I came for. And just six hours later, Peter's denying him in front of girls in the courtyard. He's ready to fight the whole army, and later on, he's so depressed because God has stopped him and not let him do what he wanted to do, that he's denying him before the lowest. I mean, not even, not even women. He's denying him before little girls <laughs> saying, I don't know him. What a change in 12 hours. And yet Jesus knew that that would happen. And he took a horrible death. When he stands before Pilate and Pilate says, you know, I have power of life and death. What's he answering? You have no power unless it was given to you. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, I could call 10,000 legions of angels to deliver me. Which is more, he said, I'm calling, I can call more angels than you have men at your disposal, Rome has at your disposal. Yeah. Not just, though so you have uh, 
Pilate, but all of Rome, I can call more angels than all of Rome's legions. Yeah. And, and Pilate's probably looking at him like, you've got to be a crazy nut. What are you talking about? You know, I have the power to kill you. And he says, no, you don't. I give my life. Jesus went to the cross willingly. At any point, he could have told the Father, these people aren't worth it. The people aren't worth it. Just come and re- I'm just coming up to you. I'm coming to you. He could have just spoke a word and everybody would have been dead. And he went to the cross to die for us. That's love. He hung on the cross in agony in love for us. And as much physical agony as he went through, he didn't say, Father, I've had enough. Take me. I'm coming home. He continued to die for us. Then he became sin. And the real agony became on him. And he still hung there willingly for us so that we could be forgiven. That is love. That is what he's done for us. That is what he expects us to be willing to do for him if called to do it. Now, most of us are never going to be called to do that much. But where are we? Are we ready to hang on a cross for him? Are we ready to be beheaded for him? Are we ready to go to jail for him? Are we ready to die? All of the disciples, except for John, died horrible deaths. Very bad deaths. You know, Paul actually got away easy. He just was beheaded. Thomas was quartered. They tied him to four animals and drug him in four different directions. That's a bad death. Peter was flogged and, and crucified. Says he was crucified upside down. I, I, I do believe that he requested to be, but I don't believe he was because the body couldn't handle being crucified upside down. But I, believe he, I do believe he asked for it. You know, they all died horrible deaths because they said, we have more to give and be satisfied. And God says, okay, now it's time for you to come home. Isaiah. Isaiah had a horrible death. They stuck him in a log and sawed him in half. You know, and he's one of the famous prophets. <laughs> he died a horrible death. Jeremiah, every time he opened his word, the king threw him in a dungeon or a a cistern. Every time he gave the prophecy, he was thrown into a dungeon or a cistern. How would you like to be him? And he was told, nobody's going to listen to you. Is that when he came up with Lamentations? Early on in Jeremiah, he says, God, I've had so many problems, I'm not going to speak to you for you anymore because I keep having all these problems. And the next verse says, the God's word burned in his mouth and he couldn't help but speak. (laughs) I've been there. I've been there where the word is just burning and you've got to speak because even if it's going to sound totally wrong compared to everybody else that's speaking, and that's usually when it happens. You're in a group and everybody's saying the wrong things and all of a sudden it just burns in you and it's like, I have got to speak. This is Jeremiah's message. Every time he spoke, he was saying, God is bringing judgment on Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to fall. He was, he was called a traitor. You know, and, they, and they would throw him in the dungeon or throw him in a cistern. Every time he spoke. You know, are we ready to be 
treated however God wants us to be treated? Are we ready to stand for God no matter what? Are we feeding ourselves with the word of God, with the, with the water of the word? And the last verse I want to cover on this one is verse 5. Behold, you shall call a nation that knows you not, and nations that knew you not shall run to you because the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And this is definitely talking about Jesus. Jesus went to the nations that did not know Judaism. The Jews were told to go to the world. Right? When we read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, over and over we see these laws are for you and for those that live in your borders. So God says the law is the same for you and Gentiles. What did the Jews do? Gentiles, you stay away. They, did, they isolated themselves. They were God's chosen people because God chose Abraham and they were separate and nobody else was going to be part of their group. And Jesus came and all through these scriptures we see that God wanted Gentiles to hear the word of God. He wanted them to come to him. Jesus came and says, okay, you've, Jews, you've rejected me. We're going to go to the Gentiles. Paul, when he was ministering and starting churches, he would go to the cities, he would talk to the Jews. When the Jews rejected the message, he says, fine, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he went to the Gentiles with the gospel message that the Jews kept rejecting. God said all through the scriptures, you have hard hearts and, and ears that, are, that are, won't listen. So I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. All through the Old Testament, you read, you're rejecting me, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. We are so thankful that that happened in many cases because we are Gentiles. There's not a Jew in this room, as far as I know. There's no Jewish people in this room. And because they rejected, we got the gospel message. Jesus died for our sins, the Passover lamb, so that we could enter into heaven. And thankfully, nations that did not know him responded to him because he was glorified. He went to the cross went to the grave for three days and rose from the dead victorious. And the Jews definitely helped prove that he had risen from the dead because they said, we need to put a guard on that, on that tomb so the disciples don't steal the body. And Jesus still resurrected from the dead. <laughs> and they tried to blame it on the, on the disciples. And you, we, when we get to the, to the story of resurrection, we talk about this a lot. The greatest story that was ever told by the Roman centurion guards was while we slept, they, the disciples stole the body. <laughs> they were sleeping. Yeah. You know, number one, they were sleeping. You don't, soldiers don't sleep on duty. That's a death sentence. Number two, what do you know if you're sleeping? <laughs> yeah, but I've heard this. So-and-so stole, robbed my house while I was sleeping. Uh, how do you know? If you were sleeping, how do you know? Well, I just know. Just like, the, just like the guards, we were told, we just know that they did it while we were sleeping. You know, worst worst uh, defense ever out there. But they were paid to do it, and then their, their bosses were paid off so they didn't get killed for sleeping on, you know, supposedly sleeping on duty. But you know, all of these things happen. Satan could not keep Jesus dead. He paid the debt, and... He stood up and said, the debt is paid. And he came forth with power. Why? Because Satan didn't realize 
that when the innocent died for, the innocent perfect lamb died, that paid for everything and ended the law. We are no longer bound by the law. We're not bound by the law. We can't keep the law to, be, to please God. Now we go, by disobeying the law, we're just proving that we aren't right with God. And even those who don't know the law of God still don't follow their own law. That's what Paul says in, in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He goes, even if you don't know the law of God, you don't even keep your own law. You know, how many times do we know that's true? Gangs have their own laws. Now, we don't necessarily agree with their rules and their laws, but they break their own rules and laws. They can't even keep their laws, which we say are bad. At the prison, they have their own laws and rules. Those of us who are outside of the prison think those laws are crazy and weird. They think they're fine and normal, but they can't keep their own rules. They prove, even if, they're, even if God judged them by their rules, that they're wrong and sinners. God says, okay, you didn't keep my rules? Did you keep the government's rules? Oh, you didn't keep the government's rules? Did you keep your family's rules? No, you didn't keep your family's rules? Did you keep your, 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 your group's rules? And he says, oh, you didn't keep any of those rules? You're not perfect by any of those styles? You're guilty. Because nobody is perfect under any rules, whether they're God's rules or man's rules. And Jesus came to be glorified, to be lifted up in victory so that we could have victory because he now indwells us and says, you have my power to live. My power to be content in what you have. My power to love your enemy. My power to be forgiven. And he indwells us and he pours out of us is living water to the world. Lord, we just ask you to bless this time. Lord, help us to be living water to the world as we go about our business. Help us to splash your spirit on everybody around us. Teach us to be content. Help those who don't know you to turn to you and follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, but God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this. God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, Tell somebody that you are saved. 
Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.